Hello, I'm Pete Raby, CEO of the X4 Group, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect. And when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. The Leadership Learns podcast brings you inspiring stories from diverse global leaders from a range of different organizations and industries on how they innovate and improve to become the best possible leader. Our guest today is James Thurgood, Head of Legal at Metrobank. James is responsible for the day-to-day running of the legal team, overseeing, identifying, and dealing with the broad legal matters affecting Metrobank day-to-day. James joined the bank because of the challenge of a change of sector and has been there for nearly six years. Before that, he was legal counsel at Care UK, a private equity-backed healthcare business. In his spare time, James enjoys walks with his wife and two daughters, one and three years old. James, I can relate there running and is a keen motorsport enthusiast. James, welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. How are you and how on earth has the last 16 months been for you? Yeah, very good, sir. Thank you for having me. The last 16 months, I would say, has been tough on and off. It's it's very difficult to describe a tough time when, all being well, I have a healthy family, managed to carry on as a business. And personally, there have been significant upsides to the last 16 months. So whilst I say it's been tough and there have been some low points generally i think we've done pretty well actually absolutely are you a are you a glass half full person james you come at things with a bit more pessimism which way round are you wired i'm very much a glass half empty person i have to work at being much more optimistic so uh, the last 16 months have been an effort in pragmatism i think it has been one of those unique 16 months in history this is something for the first time that i think every single leader from every single sector has had to do stuff they've never done before in relation to the way they lead, the way they communicate, and how they keep making sure that there's adaptability, but also stability. I think it's really important for listeners to get the context of where you've come from, James, and where you've got to today. So I qualified into a firm, Shakespeare Martineau, as a commercial litigator. Been working for several years, did my degree by distance learning and did a rather unusual route. I contract to my LPC concurrently. Um, so I decided that I wanted to move in-house into Care UK, who are a healthcare company, having never done anything to do with healthcare before. It was quite an eye-opening experience, a little over a year, and had the opportunity to apply for a role at Metrobank. I've been there for six years. I'm currently head of legal there. I think it's a great thing to ask about going in-house as opposed to not. Give me your angle on that, James. For a while at the point that I went in-house, I wouldn't recommend anybody going in-house normally until you'd done sort of three or four years in law and you'd done your bread and butter training with such a level of responsibility. It's a very different environment. It brings about its benefits, though, because you are at the coalface of what your your client, your stakeholders, your own business is doing. You are able to influence in a way that perhaps as external counsel, as private practice, you can't. It's a very interesting take on that. Metro Bank, they've almost in lots of ways gone against the grain with having physical store locations, but with that added flexibility of being much more consumer-led than the traditional banking model. It'll be really interesting to hear from your take in being that head of legal from the last 16 months, James. What were the biggest challenges at Metro Bank when this whole kind of crisis kicked off? Well, I have to say Metrobank has weathered the storm very well. We have still managed to stay true to our core customer proposition. I think people talk about unique selling point as being putting the customer first. Genuinely from inside the organisation, we really do that. And we carried on during COVID. Customers needed us more than ever. Small businesses needed access to us. And that's where our store footprint really helped. We carried on being a community bank. In terms of the challenges, I think 
operationally, I think we nailed it. I think we did a, a great job in managing colleagues to work from home. From a cultural perspective, I think it's hard. We pride ourselves on culture. We don't talk about it. We live it in terms of our colleagues, our customers. It pervades everything we do. So to maintain that culture when suddenly everybody leaves the office, you're not seeing each other face to face, it has two sort of facets. The efficiency of work, how do you carry on doing your job on a day-to-day basis without those side of desk conversations? Well, the answer is somebody puts an hour's meeting in your diary and very quickly during lockdown, your diary is filled up with something that could have taken five minutes to talk about. And then from a cultural perspective, you don't see your colleagues. And it's a particularly difficult time for some of my colleagues. There have been family issues in, in some respects, friends, and a lot of people in our business came into a London environment expecting to have the trappings of a London working environment. You have to make a much more conscious effort to be present and available. You mentioned the cultural side being tough, and I think there'd be a lot of leaders listening that would completely resonate with that. Were there any things that you did proactively or any things that, looking back in hindsight, that you've adapted and done differently as a leader in that last 16 months? So I think in terms of the soft skills, absolutely. The cultural side of things, we have one-to-one meetings where the whole team joins twice a week on a Tuesday and a Thursday. And the idea is not to talk about work. It's to talk about how well England have played or how badly England have played. It's to talk about what people are doing in their personal lives. So we've done things like that. The benefit you gain from seeing people face-to-face, I hadn't realised just how important that really was. A really interesting one. Um, The two meetings a week not talking about work. Now, I think (laughs) the amount of people that uh, pretty quickly, it was far whilst it began and like doing cook-along classes was all right (laughs) and having the early quizzes was all right. But crikey, O'Reilly, it wasn't too long before people went, right, enough of that. Have you found that you're still able to get some good attendances and people enjoying having those kind of couple of meetings a week just talking about anything other than work? How's that gone? So look, truthfully, it's it can be difficult. Sometimes you feel like it can be forced, as you rightly point out, and, and it's a good observation. There were a load of quizzes to start off with. There were escape rooms and things like that that people did. But the reality of a, a cadence being reached where you do the same thing, you see the same thing, you're absolutely right. Attendance has dropped off a little, but people do have a job to do as well. So I can't, I can... I can forgive them for that. I think the the key thing is to to make those channels open. I think for me, and I don't know about you, Peter, sitting behind a screen at home without the distractions that the open plan office, it would be very easy for me not to speak or see anybody other than my my day-to-day meetings. So making that time and keeping those sorts of channels open and and having these individual one-to-ones that we have weekly, I think is really important. Even if they aren't used, it's good to know they're there. In lots of ways, there has been a wonderful thing that's happened in the last 16 months in the sense that I really feel that people, at least for the moment, care more. Mm. (laughs) They they care about the human behind the job title. And I think there's been a lot more of humanity that's crept into leadership in the last 16 months. And One of the things that I wanted to ask you about was visible leadership. How do you try and keep that balance? It sounds like these one-on-ones, it sounds like the face-to-face meetings, but... What's your take on visible leadership and how it's best done in the current world? Um, physical visibility. Uh, it's its being available, albeit I say physical visibility. A lot of this is, is having to be done remotely. Um, as I've said, we have one-to-ones. We have, um, yeah. I'm trying to get around and visit. And as things open up, 
We are arranging team meetings down in London to the extent that people are comfortable. There's there's very much flexibility. I think you mentioned it earlier. There's very much an understanding now of the personal impact and how people might be feeling. I think it's important to to lead by example. So you referred to being in the office. I, I sort of have two takes on that. So so we have at the moment a rule where nobody works in the office uh, physically unless there are a very good reasons, unless there's a business, business critical reason, unless there's some sort of health reason or, or other reason. And our CEO is a good example. He he hasn't been coming to the office. And I think it's because he's conscious that if he, if he does that, everybody else, you know, you'll see the CEO do it and you'll think, do I have to be in? Should I be doing that? And I think that cascades down an organisation. If you have a message from the, from the top, a, a cultural message that says, no, you're not needed to come in the office other than a narrow set of circumstances, then it's important everybody does that uh, and adheres to it. And it is a really important point, James. Thank you for raising it. One of the big things that we kept stressing throughout is, although people are, you do what's right for your individual situation. Work, work it out. Work with your leader. Get what's right for you. And although that we are, you're absolutely right, James, very, very much a an energy-based business, and there's been some very prominent people for Goldman Sachs and Barclays talking about innovation and entrepreneurial mindset, that kind of thing. I think individual businesses have got to do what's right for them, but whilst absolutely maintaining that there's going to be individuals within those businesses that do need those unique setups. Actually, that hybrid model should be one of those things. Why does that ever have to change again? Do you think, what's your take on whether or not it's going to revert back to people being in more and more and more? Or do you think a lot of businesses are going to keep to this hybrid model that seems so popular? It's a hard one. I mean, you mentioned um, some of the businesses saying that they should be returning back to the office. Having sat here and just said to you, you know, we'll be looking at doing flexible working. I think at the moment the plan is for for, um, our colleagues to be in two days a week and and therefore to be more business-wide flexibility. I'm not naive to the fact that there are some businesses that have a culture or an ethos or an entrepreneurial requirement, let's say, to convene, to do those things. And again, that's I think that's part of why we as a business will will carry on with a hybrid model. It makes good sense because it limits your 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 exposure to fixed overheads. If everybody doesn't need to be in the office, you're just paying for office space that it, that is not being used. But equally, I think it's important to collaborate. It's important to see those people. It's important to have those side of desk conversations, particularly in a fast moving business. I think what you said was spot on. It, it comes down to what, what the business sees its culture as and what, it, what its requirements are. In short, do I think we will continue with hybrid model? Yes, I think, I think in the interim. And I think actually candidates that are applying for roles will start to drive that, that narrative, will start to expect to have that level of, of, of flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. What have you found to be the best things for your leadership development, James? How do you go about actually making sure that you don't just stand still, that you keep moving forward as a leader? In terms of the the, the sort of the application of to, to being a good leader, I think it's very easy in this day and age, um, particularly I think in the lines of work that we are in, to let personal development go by the wayside. And I am I'm pretty poor. At that I think it's important to be consciously putting yourself in front of those opportunities having that learning and I think for me there are a variety of things you can do I have a I have a peer group that that involves um, some mentors for me it's it's useful seeing how they behave and what they're doing I'm so early on in my 
in my career, I think, and in my own personal development, it would be arrogant to say I know anything more than a small percentage of what of what good leadership might look like. Every day is a learning day, and I read something the other day. Um, I, I'd said to some of my um, some of my team, I didn't want them online. I could see a, a growing issue with with them online later and later, and I said that it's easy to be at a desk. Please don't send emails after six o'clock because you're encouraging other people to engage in that that might feel they have to do that. Please don't be online after seven. And I thought that was great. To me, that was great leadership. And then I saw an article from, uh, I think her name's Sarah Walker-Smith. She's CEO at Shakespeare Martineau, my old firm. And she said, I'd react very badly if somebody told me I couldn't work in the evening. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked by Mm -hmm. that. And when you think about it, well, of course, because flexibility is not about dictating everybody does their hours in a nine to five. And I think that's by implication what I was doing. I'd I'd effectively led my team to believe that they shouldn't be online at night. And actually, that might work better for them. So I think every day is a learning day. And I think it's being open to to that. Absolutely. I mean, I'm someone that really loves super early working. Again, like yourself, three young daughters. (laughs) If if, if there's ever a a house that's quite after half past six, it's a complete blessing. So I quite like having breakfast with them whilst having the computer open and just getting a little bit of overnight work done we've got offices in New Zealand and New York so there's always people that you can be speaking to the whole time and I think adaptability at the moment is a really big word that I'd like I'd I'd like to come back to but before we do you mentioned something that we kind of rushed past James and I know in our, our, our prior conversation it sounded like it has been incredibly successful for you so far and also definitely an area I'd like to hear more on because I know it's not an area that I'm utilizing very well at the moment. And that is this, the role of mentors. Talk me through uh, the, the relationship that mentors have, have had in your life, how you've gone about that decision process. And yeah, so, some, of, some of the gains you feel like you get from that setup. So I think there are two different types of mentors. There, there are mentors that perhaps you don't know you have. They, they might be family members or friends, people that you are taking cues from, you're, you're, you're taking what you think is, is good. They might be people that just you can pick the phone up to and have a vent to, or they help you crystallize what you're thinking in terms of your development or a decision you need to make. I think the mentors we're talking about here are the, are the, are the ones where you actively engage someone. They know they're your mentor. You know they're uh, a mentor. For me, that's only a relatively recent thing. And I, and, I, and even the people that I held as mentors, I've only recently started telling them, oh, you are a mentor, by the way. Thank you very much. Uh, for me, I think it's I think it's really important. I think it's it's somebody for me that is outside of my organization that can provide a different view to me, that can challenge in the right way, and, and that doesn't sit there and tell me how to do something. I'm, I'm very much a believer that irrespective of your age, your seniority, the role you're doing, if you have a problem that needs to be resolved, and that's predominantly what I use a, a mentor for, actually the person with that problem is the one with the solution. And, and a mentor for me, and I can think of one particularly, is great at just actively listening and unlocking the the decision-making process that I need to get to. And asking those right questions, as you say, there's, give someone the answer, it's going to be extremely short-lived in terms of the benefit of it, but if they're able to come there by themselves, and crikey, mm-hmm. that's when you some real momentum behind it yeah it's definitely something that i is on my uh increasingly growing to do list to get a, a little bit better at in, in in the coming weeks we talked about imposter syndrome before we had a wonderful visit from ann daniels who's a polar explorer yesterday and she was saying that even with all of her accomplishments 
imposter syndrome is very real and it's very real for many, many leadership figures. What do you think the biggest cause of this imposter syndrome is, James? I'm just pure speculation here. But um, and what are the main things you think that people could do to, over, to, to overcome it? So in terms of the cause, I don't know. I think, I think, it's, a, I think it's a character trait. I, I'd, I've read in the past that it can be rooted in your, in your formative years. So if you're part of a family or a, a school or a working group that values achievement to the detriment of everything else, I think perhaps you could build that up. I'm not convinced that's the case for me. And the truth is, I don't know. I haven't spoken to anyone about it because I don't, I don't know is the answer. You know, I, I, you might remember when you approached me to, to do this, my, my response to you um, was, was very much along the lines of, well, um, that's great. I'm, I'm always open for a conversation. Um, but what more can I add to the excellent broad conversations you've already had? That was me very gently saying, I know <laughs> who you've had on before. I mean, last the last gentleman was um, James Sullivan, uh, a Ziglu. And now he he's he's articulate, he's intelligent, he's very capable. And I listened to that podcast after you'd said to me, and I thought, I can't add anything there. And that's precisely the reason why I've agreed to do this, because it's important to fight that propensity to just say, no, 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 this isn't me. What can I add to this? That's so, it. yeah, I, I, I have a real problem with it. How do I deal with it? Well, um, there are two ways, I, I think, upon reflection I deal with it. The first is I surround myself and I have peers that over time I start talking the same language and I can see the way they're dealing with things is perhaps the way I'm dealing with it. Or somebody in my peer group will say, hey, that's great. I hadn't thought of it like that. I think the other way is is lawyers generally, I think, are quite objective, logical people. And yet this imposter syndrome is not a logical thing. So trying to sit there and, and consciously separate how am I feeling from what are the facts here? The facts here is, well, Peter's asked me to do a podcast. He must think there's something there. Um, yeah. You know, I've been in this role. I've been at Metro for six years. They must think I'm pretty good at my job. And, and, and so getting the facts straight in your head um, has I think I think does help me, uh, but I won't deny it. I find it very difficult. When you're naturally good at certain things, but have a natural reservation for other things, actually going against that curve is not an easy thing to. Do. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about networking. How do you feel that you've got on on the networking side so far, James? Any big benefits from that? So I think my networking has improved as my confidence has grown in who I am and, and what I can do and what my strengths and weaknesses are. I remember when I started off in private practice, I, the, the idea was the paralegals, the trainees would all be sent in with the surveyors, the accountants, and you'd be put into a room and everybody was selling. Nobody was buying as such. But, you know, at, at that age and seniority, maybe I didn't have anything to sell anyway. But what I found was there was this forced situation there are a number of people that all stand there and say hi i'm james i'm a trainee solicitor i work at shakespeare martino and here's what i that's not really that interesting it's it's not that's forced networking for me and perhaps you have to do that to an extent i'm not i'm not naive what i've found over time is and it's obvious people like dealing with people i'm not naturally a people person i have a brother that is exceptional at this people just gravitate towards him that's not me so I found I've had to work at personal brand and I've had to get comfortable with networking. And the way I've done it is by dealing with people I want to deal with, dealing with people that have similarities to me. And I'm fortunate that 
I don't have to sell something. So I don't have to pitch generally to people that I don't have this affinity with or, you know, whether it's children or motorsport. So I've, I've found that from a networking perspective, um, one of the keys to unlocking things for me was just enjoying speaking to people and, and, and engaging with those people that are like-minded. Dealing with people I want to deal with is a, probably the main reason that I have always loved being in our sector. I wanted to ask you about that because I, I think that's definitely something you and I share. I've got a brother that I'm incredibly envious about and of his ability to be a chameleon in any social situation. He seems to, be able to get on with anyone in any walk of life. And it's always something that, mm. because I viewed him as so much better than me, I was like, oh, well, that's not my forte. Whereas the reality is sometimes there can be a bit of a limiting factor where when you see someone that's outstanding at something, I have in my head, well, you're automatically not going to be very good at it. Don't bother with it. But I, I think there's a great a great enjoyment to come from maturing in roles and in life where you're mm. like, actually, no, I'm, I'm not half bad at that. And you can begin to accept the differences that much more. How do you feel that your kind of leadership, you know, uh, celebrates this, the, the, the strengths in others and encourages people to, uh, to, to find out what those strengths are, James. Is that anything that you're proactive with? So I don't know. I think it's important to have people own whatever it is that they're, they're, they're doing for or, or with you. So with each of my team, irrespective of their seniority, I expect them to own their career. I, I, I want to, them to achieve what the business needs to achieve, but this is a two-way thing. I, I expect yeah. them to come to me with, well, this is what I want to achieve, James. And, and so we will have, uh, with each of my reports, I have a, a monthly development one-to-one that is an hour instead of half an hour. And I sit there, or I try to sit there and listen. You know, what do you want to do with your career? How are you... How you, do you feel your objectives are going? How can I help you? And actually, we have one member of our team that I would be very surprised if she didn't actively want to leave to pursue a training contract soon. So long as I know that's the case, I can plan for yeah. it as a leader, I can consider the recruitment, and I can help her in achieving that goal. One of the things I try to do is is enable people to to set their own path to, to, to the extent I can, let them self-determine. I think there's three big things from what you said there, James. It was a... It was a pretty uh, curveball question. You're absolutely right. One thing is asking the question. If there isn't a setup, and especially in high growth businesses, startup businesses, I know we've got a lot of listeners that come from that from that space, there isn't always the formality or the setup or the structure that allows those questions to be asked. And coupled with that, of course, is the consistency. I think loads of people do reviews, but if in those reviews, there's so much to cover and there isn't the dedicated time. The thing that you've also touched upon there is being authentic and actually building mm-hmm. relationships with team members where they feel that you've got their back and you want the best for them. Now, you skirted past that, maybe because it becomes maybe maybe because it comes naturally, James, or you're good at it. But the reality is I'd be very, very surprised if every leader listening, and I'll count myself in that, can say honestly that their team members are always honest with them especially with people that are thinking, actually, I'm probably going to be moving on at some point. Excellent learn to take away from what you've just said, James. So thank you very much for sharing. But when it comes to hiring, it's always a fascinating thing to ask people about because there's such a range of personalities that can do well. But when you're trying to fit in with a culture, fit in with a vision, you want a certain level of capability. Have there been any hiring learns that when you've hired over the years that you've you've taken and said, wow, I either won't do that again, or that's a really important loan that I'm going to stick to from now on? 
given my relatively short career, it's perhaps best I don't say, no, I won't do that again, because uh, it may be easy to identify. But from a from a positive perspective, I think we talk about diversity and inclusion, and, and I, you know, it's, a, it's a, a hot subject at the moment. It's important, but I think diversity is is about more than race or sex. It's about diversity of thought as well. I think it's important, and the people that I've hired over the years, um, certainly into my into my current team, are a variety of thinkers. As you say, they're, they're all intelligent. Uh, irrespective of seniority, they are all intelligent. They wouldn't be lawyers if they if they weren't. Well, I'm sure we all know a lawyer that we don't think is particularly bright. <laughs> um, the, the key thing for me, and, and actually it's Metro as well, they, we refer to to this um, missive about um, uh, hire, hiring for attitude, uh, train for knowledge. Well, solicitors are a little bit different to that, I think, because they have you have they have to have a certain amount of knowledge. But the key thing is I have a small in-house team. People do work closely together and culture is key. I, I really I really want people that have the right attitude, that want to work, that want to come into work, that, that want to do the right thing, that, that have the right set of ethics and morals. So I think the, the, key, the key learn I've had is culture is far more important than I'd realised before I arrived at Metro. And I, I in future, will, will take that into my recruitment. We were definitely at one point had way too much of an emphasis on hiring for cultural fit rather than, as we do now, hiring for cultural contribution. Whereas the reality is now I've been overjoyed with the progression we've made from a diversity of background, from a diversity of thought, and just making sure we haven't got the same type of person. And I think it's very easy for businesses to slip into, and they can be very successful businesses. We were doing okay when we were in this ourselves, but it can be very easy to hire just for cultural fit rather than cultural contribution. Is, is that anything that you, uh, when you've done your hiring before, have, have, have tried to bear in mind or, or, or have got any learns from? I think that's a really that's a really interesting point. I hadn't considered the difference between cultural, cultural fit and cultural contribution. Um, I'd read an article that said Google went through a period where um, they were hiring the best, um, I think there were software engineers, and they kept hiring from the, you know, the, the amazing institutions in America, the, the Harvards and so on. What they got was the same really capable, really great people with the same, you know, middle class, upper class background. And they realized it took them a little while, but they realized they, were, they weren't getting the entrepreneurial productivity they were expecting. I think your point is interesting. I, I don't know. I hope I hope that without consciously thinking about it, I have hired people that are uh, cultural contributors, people that are actually going to move, move us on. It's important to do that, but it's important to let them have a say and, and let them be able to do that. Uh, it's something I'll reflect, reflect upon. No, I hadn't considered that. A, a couple of interesting questions before we get on to any kind of books or podcasts and fun restaurants to sit in for an afternoon, James. But from a leadership perspective, is there one thing that you think more people should know from a leadership perspective? Is there one thing that people should bear in mind as far as you're concerned? I think I think something that stuck out and it, it is really serious. It's 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 sorry, really simple. And I don't it's the and I learned this from a very early stage. I don't think it really matters what your business's culture is. You as a leader have the opportunity, a leader at any level have the opportunity to influence both your direct direct line reports, but the people around you. Um we have a thing at Metro that says zest is contagious, share it. It's part of our our cultural acronym. I think that the underlying message is that 
if you bring that enthusiasm, you bring that attitude, and you're you know you're the other change you want to see is the, the the awful cliche. Actually, the reality is people warm to that, and you will pass that on. So I think I think as a leader, you can create your own microclimate. It doesn't really matter what other people are doing; it doesn't matter what your business is doing to 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 a, a greater or lesser extent. The key thing is, what are you doing to influence that? Create your own microclimate of culture. James, I think that's an absolute humdinger. I haven't heard that before. Zest is contagious, but you're absolutely right. I think it's very easy. I've definitely been guilty of it in the past where you're kind of like, oh, if others are doing that, then maybe I should just conform. It's like, no, no, you, you can do what feels right and you can create your own microclimate. And I think you're, you're bang on the money. It, it's one of the things that we're a rapidly growing business ourselves at the moment. I know there will be some people that might get to a limit of their leadership capability, but others will say, no, I reckon I've got something pretty interesting here. Who wants to come on a journey with me? And that will be very, very interesting to see in coming years. I think that's an, an, an excellent, excellent point. Someone on the podcast in the last few weeks has asked me, and I do think this is a great question, how do you think people feel when you leave the room, James, and how do you want them to feel? That is – it's not a question I've been asked before. It's an incredible question. It's pretty horrible to from an interest, from an introspe- introspection perspective um to, to sit and think about this uh look honestly in, in a work sense um rather than a personal sense i think people that don't know me that well will be probably relieved when i leave a room i can be quite intense i can be serious from time to time uh and that's something i'm working on i think lawyers are, are naturally serious and somebody said to me you know bring a bit of you know, outside James in into into work. You know, be a be a bit more sort of fun. You don't have to be serious just because you're a lawyer and you think that's how people um, need to perceive you. If if you're not serious, people won't think that you're good at your job. I think people that know me uh, would would feel I've I hope would feel it was a happy engagement. I'd resolved their problem and moved it on in in some way. Certainly, I'd like to to feel like I'd like them to feel like that. Yeah, that's a, it's a. The, the, the word that I've just written down there while she was speaking, James, is that I'd, I would be very, very surprised anyone found that someone was just being authentic, that that wouldn't mean for a lot because we've all got different personalities, we've all got different backgrounds, way of doing things. And I do like it. I'm with you. There was a board meeting months ago, and I like to have a bit of a laugh and a joke whilst I'm doing business because at the end of the day, it's work. We're all blessed to have good jobs, living in you know nice part of the world. And crikey, there's many, many people in a, a far less fortunate position. So I do like to occasionally, you know, have a bit of a lighthearted quip in the middle of a serious meeting. And actually, uh, one of the people that was advising us said, go, uh, just that little bit of fun that's gone out of proceedings at the moment, Pete. Like, is why is that? And uh, I thought it was a great point. Again, is having those people around you to be able to have those conversations that otherwise are extremely hard to relate to yourself. And I, I really recognised that when I wasn't having fun in these kind of meetings, I wasn't enjoying my life as much as mm-hmm. I'd like to. And I do like it to be a combination of hard work and great work, but done so with a smile on our face and done so with energy. And I think the one thing I've, I've thought about this question quite a few times, and if you say it's, it, it can be a bit more one to throw out and feel pretty unpleasant to think about, but if I think with anyone, when he leaves the room, well, that's Pete, that is Pete. I don't think he's trying to be anyone else. Do you know what? That's that's all I can really do. Um, I'll, I'll have many many failings, but if you can just be yourself, take you know, uh, so to speak. But there's someone that wants to learn, then I guess that's all we can do. And mm. um, another interesting question before we get on to those final lighthearted questions is: What's the more most important risk you've taken in your career so far, James, and 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 why? 
So, so undoubtedly, this was um, taking the taking the leap into into in house as a as a sort of one year PQE lawyer. I, I think back now, and and I the the feeling of fear, you know. So again, somebody somebody said to me, and I think it's a fairly common phrase, but um, find something that that scares you or makes you uncomfortable and do it anyway. That, that was very much the case here. It would have been very easy for me to stay within my firm and. You know, you, you do the same sort of career path up through associate and so on. The thought on my first day of sitting there and being given a commercial contract in a sector I didn't know, where there were only two lawyers at, at that point, and, and your GC sitting there and saying, well, away you go. You sit there and you think, well, I, I don't have a partner to oversee my work. There's nobody to red pen it. That, for me, was was scary and was a was a I think it was a hell of a learning curve. But I think what that's done is it's taught me to take risks. The, the, the things do have a habit of working out. Absolutely, it's a good angle to to speak about, James. Thank you for that. Um, right, a couple of uh, lighter hearted questions. You'll probably be delighted to hear, James. Now, um, I, I started. I haven't quite got myself to the light provide, and I really plan never to have some, uh, never to do so. But I started biking into the office since last summer. I'll kind of try and think, right, with every situation, is there something better that I can do off the back of this? And biking to and from work has been the thing that I've that, that I, I picked up. And so I use that time. I've got some of those, um, don't get sponsored by them, so I probably shouldn't say a name, but I use these Aftershocks earphones that kind of go, they don't go into your ears. You sound mm-hmm. listen safely to a podcast whilst I'm on my bike. I love listening to podcasts. I love listening to – there's a lot of sporting ones. There's not so many good business ones. Um, and there's some really interesting ones in between, of course. And I love that uh, hour and a half a day of just switching off and being able to do some learning in bits and pieces. Also, I'm a big fan of reading when I can. Is there any book of recent months or podcast or video that you'd recommend or film that you've watched that you've had some lasting learns from over the years, James? It's, it's it's perhaps a little bit cringy because it's on topic. You know, we're talking about we're talking about leadership here. But I, I there's a there's a book called Living Leader by Penny Ferguson that is a compilation of ideas that that most leaders will have will have heard. I think um, articulated in some guise or another, but it distills the essence of those beautifully. Um, for for somebody on the start of their leadership journey, for me it distilled the principles into something that I still refer back to. And there's one particular section that refers to taking responsibility for aspects of one's life. I had a great conversation with our, um, uh, our, what was our CRO at that point, our chief risk officer, uh, about how she'd taken this. For me, the the taking of responsibility is um, you have a set of facts and how you perceive those facts is within your control. So I used to do a commute out of Paddington back into Didcot in Oxfordshire, and I'd sit there on the way home and think, the train air conditioning isn't working. It's horrendous. I'm wedged under somebody's armpits. I'm not going to be able to see the kids at dinner time. Well, taking ownership of that, taking responsibility of that, and changing your perception can change your mindset and others around you. So another person, and hopefully me now, would say, well, I've got a seat on the train. I made the train at... It's half past six, so I'll be able to put the kids to bed. Two very different approaches, and they can change. For me, it changed my whole evening. You know, I came back with a positive attitude. And so so owning that sort of set of facts and, and changing how you perceive yourself, that's a key learn for me. It's a book that I haven't read. I'm definitely going to dip into it now, James. So thanks for sharing that because it sounds like a, yeah, it sounds like a, a really interesting one. I, I, I had a quote yesterday that someone said to me about, 
you can control what you can control. And before you say, oh, this is out of my control, actually just ask yourself, is it? And uh, I think there's a lot of people that get stuck in certain habits and certain routines. Oh, and it's just one of the things that they whinge to their friends and other halves about, whereas the reality is sometimes, no, no, you can look at things in a different light. I think that is a that is a good learn for sure there. Um, this coming Monday is going to be the time where restrictions are lifted. Um, it has been for a few weeks, thankfully, but restaurants and pubs and bars are back open. You've got one afternoon and one afternoon only, James, to spend it with whoever you like in any of these establishments to have a, a really nice, relaxing, unwinding afternoon. Where are you spending it and why? <laughs> Good question. Uh, I was sort of spoiled in, in London, really, spoiled for choice. Um, I really like the idea of doing something um, simple and doing it well. So I'd probably spend the afternoon uh, with my team or my friends at Relay de Venise, um, which is a, a steak restaurant. They just do steak frites. They just do one type of, of red wine. They have a place in Paris. So if you're lucky enough to to, to, to be in Paris, I, I don't know how long that's going to take, but it's worth <laughs> going to do it. A great source, great service, very simple. But I, you know, I like my steak and it's a great atmosphere. Yeah, that sounds bang on the money. As you say, I think there's definitely room and time for mission star restaurants, but I agree with that sentiment entirely. Sometimes the very simplest things, especially after the last 16 months, the very simplest things are the most enjoyable because life doesn't have to be complicated sometimes. So I think that's a great great way to end. Um, James, thank you so much for sharing your, your journey and your leadership learns with us today. Um, I'm sure there's lots that resonate with the listeners and like me, they'll be taking away some valuable ideas. Thank you everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed the episode, please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network.